Hello, and welcome to another edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Joining myself, Gary, is... Mr. Tilter Reiser. Now, I am playing the role of guinea pig in this week's It's podcast. not an experiment. I'm not testing you. I'm not playing games. Let me just put cards. Yes, cards on the table. You already know what we're talking about, obviously, because you've seen it on the podcast itself. We're talking about Doctor Who. But here's the thing. I have seen precisely 1.1 episodes of Doctor Who in my entire lives. I saw the five Doctors go out at the time when I was six. And I think I might have seen a Children in Need 3D special from 1993. That's it. That's the sum total of my knowledge of Doctor Who, past, present, and indeed future. And so, Tilt, you had this wacky idea the other week where we were trying to come up with subjects for the podcast. Yes, I, over the last year or so, had been re-watching Doctor Who from the beginning because of my wife. I mean, when I moved to the US, I brought all my DVD collection with me. And we've been going through them and my wife had always said, yeah, we're not watching Doctor Who. I said, that's fine. I'm not going to make you watch Doctor Who. It's all right. And one of the things that came out of the collection to be watched was the ABC UK show Pathfinders in Space, which is a faintly educational science fiction family drama produced by Sidney Newman. And by the end of this faintly educational science fiction family drama produced by Sidney Newman, the setup has become there's a man who thinks he's a bit dishy, he's a bit sciencey, and uh, he's sensible, but uh, he kind of likes himself. There's a sensible, quite maternal woman. There's two children, okay, two children, and a crotchety old man who can't entirely be trusted. And this series came to an end, and my wife said, Oh, sorry, we've run out of those. And it's like, you know, there is something a bit like that that we can watch. So we started Doctor Who from the beginning. We didn't go through all the episodes 1963 to 1989 because my wife was allowed to play her Joker and say, that's it, I've had enough of this Doctor, I'm not watching any more of him. Which was all but three, and in fact all but two got the treatment of, you know who should be doing this instead of this guy? But it gave me a different perspective because she had no history with the show. So she was coming to it fresh and it gave me a different perspective on the show. I'm not a colossal fan. I watched it on and off as a child. I more got into it when it was being repeated on cable in the 90s. And I'm not really a big fan of the new series. And when I went back to the old series, I found I didn't actually like most of that. So I know a lot about it, but I'm not a super fan. But the other day, I just got this sudden urge to watch The Romans. And I watched it and I thought, you know what? I think Gary would quite like this. It'd be interesting to get his opinion on it because it seems to have elements that I think would appeal to him. Maybe, first off, we should say to any Doctor Who fans who've come to the podcast for the first time, well, there's a self-indulgent element happening here. Part of the reason we're doing this is for the benefit of our regular listeners. I think some of our regular listeners would like to hear us talking about Doctor Who because they want to hear our reactions, not necessarily because we're going to say anything radically insightful that no Doctor Who podcast, of which there must be hundreds, has ever said before. There's probably podcasts out there devoted to individual episodes of Doctor Who, and the podcast running time is probably something like two hours apiece. Podcasting's not really that impressive, is it? Don't say that. Not on here. Well, just occasionally I, I like, might say to somebody, oh, yes, well, I was just uh, talking about that on a podcast recently. I thought, that doesn't sound impressive. Everybody's got a podcast. Tell you what, though. Speaking of opinions, my opinions with regard to Doctor Who, they will be at least hmm, challenging. Well, you don't have a science fiction or telefantasy background, do you? Well, I didn't need a science fiction or telefantasy background in this instance, because apart from the fact that you can do a bit of time travelling at the beginning and the end, then there wasn't much sci-fi going on with this Doctor in this story. I mean, as you said, you thought I might quite like this. This was sort of carry on up the Romans, and that's why I quite enjoyed it. Oh, you did? Good, good, excellent. Yeah, I did. I did. I did. But I mean, I didn't feel that I was watching a science fiction programme, aside from the obvious bit about, oh, they've ended up in Roman times. Well, I've got any complaint about that. And when we were doing our preliminary chat, you said, oh, you've chosen this one because it's atypical, haven't you? And I had to tell you, this is not atypical. I'm still of the opinion that it slightly is, because I know you're saying about how they sort of alternated those early series between sci-fi and historical. 
but over the course of the entire Doctor Who series, not even current ones, just up until 1989, surely the dominant feature is the big scary monsters and funny business with the TARDIS and all that kind of thing. This may not be atypical when it comes to maybe the Hartnell years, but as far as just Doctor Who period is concerned, then it is really, isn't it? You got me there. But what I mean is this is not like a single free-floating one-off in the entire history. William Hartnell stories, about one-third of them, were what they call historicals. There's historicals and there's pseudo-historicals, which is they do go back in time, but they find aliens and robots are hiding. There's quite a few of those throughout the history of the show. But there's an interesting thing about these historicals. When you have the science fiction ones, you can have monsters. Monsters are easily recognisably usually baddies. They're made to look hideous, they will move in lumbering ways, they're coded, it's, they're bad. You know it, you know to boo and hiss them. When you get to the historicals, you really only have men and women, and you have to know by their actions. There is the Aztec one, which is hailed as being quite dramatic, but the baddie, he's got scary makeup, and he's doing Laurence Olivier as Richard III, basically. But generally, there is that slight ambiguity that comes in when the good people and the bad people look generally the same. I've got a query, point of order, I wish to raise at this stage. This is a serious question, and all the questions I'm going to ask today are serious. I'm not putting any of this on for effect, right? What you just said there about lumbering monsters, why are they in the main lumbering? Because if there was a monster that suddenly turned up out of nowhere, and it was sort of lumbering towards you, okay, you'd shit yourself and you'd think, what the hell? But at the same time, if, on the other hand, you could go as fast as a cheetah, that would be a bloody sight more scary, wouldn't it? Speaking for the 63 to 89 series, if it moved really fast, it would hit the end of the set within half a second. (laughs) It happens in this story. (laughs) Nero is chasing Barbara around quite slowly because you can see he's got about 15 feet to cover. No, I thought of a way they could get around that. But they sort of could, but they couldn't at the same time. Did you ever watch Auntie's Bloomers with Terry Wogan? Yes. Okay, so there was a period of that where he was supposed to be done in the BBC archives and they used this basically phony backdrop to make it look as if the archive vault went on for miles and miles and miles. But of course, it didn't. You know, it was just a relatively small studio. Now, why didn't they do something like that? Well, they, they did. Backdrop? No, there, there is a lot of that, but it's not a Roadrunner cut. <laughs> you can't have one where somebody runs up the backdrop and goes off into the distance and then the bad guy slams into it. That's the problem. It's a backdrop. In the very first Doctor Who story, you have one where they're running away. And what's happening is the actors and actresses are running on the spot and being hit with twigs to signify the trees that they're supposed to be passing. (laughs) So that's where Peter Kay got the idea from for Amarillo. Lumbering is good. Lumbering (laughs) puts a lot less pressure on the crew. Oh, before we get into this properly, I should mention the podcast from the Sublime. And that's made by people who really do care about popular culture and genre shows. And there will be occasional proper reviews of new Doctor Who on there. And you can find that at fromthesublime.com. Right, have we chased off all the geeks? (laughs) Let's crack (laughs) this one open. Terribly. Sorry to to interject at this point. But I'm just going to give you advance warning, Tilt, that at various points in this discussion, I will be prizing open the recasting book. Just whenever a name springs to mind. So be in your guard, okay? This story's written by a guy called Dennis Spooner. And on the little research I did, I think maybe it's fair to say his lasting legacy is a lot of the work he did for ITC, things like Department S. I believe he actually did have a period starting out as a stand-up comedian. And a few of the Doctor Who stories he wrote, there is humour. And that was what was atypical about this one. This was apparently the first one where it's like, make this one funny. We're running out of avenues to pursue in some ways. So let's try putting a heavy emphasis on humour, see if that will bring us new ways to go. Because it's worth mentioning, um, in the 60s, a series of Doctor Who is roughly 40 episodes a year. So how many different writers did they have in the early days? I mean, the writer that I'm most associated with the early Doctor Who is Terry Nation. It's not a different writer every story. Some return, but yeah, there's a pretty deep talent pool. There is that story that Dennis Potter was asked and had some idea about they meet somebody who claims to be a time traveller but isn't. 
it wouldn't have been crazy for somebody to have asked Roy Clark. He was writing series dramas. He wrote Mr. Rose, as we mentioned last week. So a lot of the people who go through here are jobbing scriptwriters who will turn up on other things. Terry Nation's famous because he f- created the Daleks. He's more famous, as far as I'm concerned, for having written some of the ATV Tony Hancock Indeed, episodes. yes. And writing new material for Hancock that Hancock then ignored to do another George Arliss impression instead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get to grips with this plot. Because there's a doctor, and he's in his TARDIS. Now, bear in mind, I'm coming to this completely... You don't dating. actually know who any of the people other than... No. Let's call him... He's Doctor Who. I know it's like fingers down a blackboard for certain people. What's happened with, again, talking about the show and wife, I have to call him Doctor Who. I have to refer to the stories as Doctor Who and the... Well, might be watching something, and she says, where have I seen that guy before? He was in Doctor Who and the War Games. Because if I say the War Games... She won't know what I'm talking about. It's a little bit like talking about just William instead of saying William Brown. It cuts to the chase quicker. And these days, it now feels weirdly pedantic for me to refer to the character as the Doctor. So forgive me, I'm probably going to switch between referring to the lead character as the Doctor and Doctor Who throughout the rest of this podcast. It's a nervous tick. You didn't know anybody other than Doctor Who. But I think even in this, very quickly, I think you can get what everybody's role is. Well, not really, but okay. What? So no. Here's, no, no, I don't mean what their jobs are, but what their roles well, in the setup is. Sort of. It's a family. I'm going to give you my assessment as I saw it, and then you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. So here's Doctor Who, and he's got with him a sort of Bonnie Langford figure. I can hear people laughing as soon as I said that. I don't know why. But you pointed out to me that actually she was in the Squirrels. But she's his companion. So I know, I know who that is, right? Doctor Who companion. Got that. But then it's these other two. And I'm not really sure what they're doing there. Ultimately, it becomes that they are going to be cast in the, to quote Desmond Wilcox, the comedy subplot of the whole affair. But initially, I'm thinking, why are they in the TARDIS? Because, you know, they're a bit spare and loose and not really offering anything. So you had to explain to me who they were and then what they were doing there and so on. But I think you get the idea of, right, Ian... He's not quite the fatherly type. He's not like necessarily fatherly towards Vicky, but he's a bit of a big brother. So he's going to explain things in an understandable way. Doctor Who might have techno babble or be expected to know a bit too much about something. And he's going to get in fights. He's going to carry the action. And it's just occurred to me now as I say that, that the wheels start to come off that idea really with this story. What little I know of Doctor Who... My sort of recollection of seeing the odd clip of it here and there is that you've got Doctor and his companion. And principally, the reason that his companion is there is to be our sort of conduit. Otherwise, the Doctor would just be a bit of an oddity who was talking to himself whilst he was arsing around with his sonic screwdriver fixing the TARDIS or whatever. So the companion has to be there so she can ask, well, what are you doing? And then he explains. But you're saying now that the Doctor would explain in sort of binary and then this other fella has to sort of explain what he's on about? Is that right? He can explain things in a more naturalistic fashion. At this point, the Doctor's still quite alien. Well, the alienness fluctuates throughout the series, but I still think there are things which he wouldn't know about. Also, he's there because he's an old guy. He's the grandfatherly figure. His granddaughter has just left. And Vicky is a surrogate granddaughter. But there are times when you think, why would he know that? So he serves that in-betweenish role as Ian, and also he can carry some of the action. So when you say carry some of the action, do you mean he's like Gareth Hunt in the New Avengers? Yes, actually. Okay. And this became a problem when Tom Baker came in because they'd cast a younger actor to do some of that stuff when they didn't know who they were going to cast as the Doctor. Because they thought, well, you know, they might get an actor who's about 70. When they ended up with Tom Baker, who's only about 40, this guy's stood there like piffy on a drum. (laughs) Bit of a spare part. And then you have Barbara, who does another set of explanations. Really, it doesn't come across in this story, watching it cold, but Ian is a science teacher, Barbara is a history teacher. So they're going to have different strengths on different stories. And she's somebody who can explain, but she's also somebody who can, dare I say, get tied to the railroad tracks. 
She's not completely damsel in distress. She's played quite strongly, but I think she's just somebody else to also get in peril because you can't always have it be the kid. So I have to admit that I wasn't entirely sure what was going on right at the outset because they're in the TARDIS. And then what it looks like is that the TARDIS turns into a Roman TARDIS, if you know what I mean. I didn't realize that they'd actually gone somewhere. I mean, I knew the TARDIS with them in it had gone somewhere, but I thought they'd stayed in it. So I was thinking like wherever they go, wherever the TARDIS goes, then it takes on the surroundings of wherever they are. But apparently that wasn't correct. No, that was, I mean, that was the original idea. It wasn't meant to be a police box. There's this story going around that they had this idea that they'd be in a ship that would change shape to fit in with its surroundings. And then it was decided that would be too expensive. So it stayed a police box. I'm not sure I understand that explanation because they're building a new set for every story. Why can't some aspect of it have a door in it or some place that they can appear to emerge from? But that's the story. The idea in the story about the TARDIS is it was meant to change shape to match its surroundings and it got broken. Ah. Uh-huh. But the idea of its insides changing to match is quite interesting and I think you've probably spawned a few thousand pieces of fanfiction. But yeah, what happens is the TARDIS falls off a precipice. I don't know if it's not working or if they need to recharge or if they just decide, well, that was bothersome enough, let's just kick back and they find an abandoned villa nearby <laughs> and uh, nick the guy's stuff. <laughs> if it's abandoned then why well, I think there's a fit feeling that he might just be away on business they're squatting we'll say it was Neil Stacey's villa from Duty Free we'll say that uh, he's going to be furious when he comes back in fact so what's been going on do you think that perhaps I'm taking a slightly too lighthearted approach to the whole drama business I'm not really a dramatic sort of guy well this is interesting it's lighthearted in some ways People have lists of the first time something happens in Doctor Who. This is apparently one of the first times that somebody dies on camera and it's a joke. In fact, I'm not sure it ever became that common in the show. But it is something I've seen in write-ups. That guy gets poisoned. And the whole point of it is just to underline how callous Nero is. But as a joke, not dramatically callous. And it brings in another element. This is played as a farce. But I think some of the serious Doctor Whos are played as farces, without jokes. Because the whole thing of farce is information being withheld from people. Deliberately or accidentally, people going in the wrong place at the wrong time. And when you've got a serial drama like Doctor Who, where stories can be... Roughly, they generally fall into about four or six episodes... Some of them are shorter, some of them are longer, but it's not a bad idea of having people that we, the audience, know things about they don't know themselves. It helps ratchet up the tension, but it also helps spin out the plot. And there is a story that's missing called The Mythmakers that apparently also plays with this because it's flippant to begin with and it gets grimmer and grimmer as it goes on so that a lot of the action remains the same, but the tone changes. I can't tell you a great deal about that. I tried watching a reconstruction, but the soundtrack was in too poor a nick. I really suppose I should shell out and buy the CD with narration of it. See, this reminds me of like those Only Fools and Horses episodes. You know what I mean? When it's like, it's Del Boy arson around, and then, oh, it's all going to go, you know, somber, and you know, here's pathos and what have you. I'm probably completely off on that, aren't I? But that's, that's what it reminded me of when you said that. Well, it's not so much pathos. It's danger. Eventually the humour gets replaced by danger. So Nero's callousness is played for laughs when somebody's trying to poison him and he's he just hands the cup. Here, you try this. <coughs> Guy keels over. Oh, it was poisoned. Whereas by the end, of course, he's playing his liar as Rome burns. He's the one who has Rome burned down. That bit where he's talking about what they'll call the city when they rebuild it. Neropolis? Nero sees them? Or just Nero? It's funny, but it's also scary because he's talking about the death of thousands. It's a really nice performance from Derek Francis. I believe Derek Francis asked to be in this. This is one of the first times that a successful actor inquired about being in Doctor Who. It must have been gaining, if not respectability, notability. So this was 65? Yeah, this is 65. I do have one slight complaint about the doctor's attitude because you say about how Nero himself is rather callous towards <laughs> the population 
when Rome is burning, the daughter and his companion are just sort of standing there saying, God, so this is what happened then. Oh, isn't it wonderful being here when, when history is happening in front of you? <laughs> and the daughter saying, Yes, oh, look at that. Look at that lovely glow. Look at that lovely warm fireplace. Mm. I don't know if he actually says that, but that's the sort of impression I get. And you'd think they'd be a bit more traumatised, wouldn't you? Yeah, there's a couple of interesting things happening here. One is Dennis Spooner, who was also script editor for a while. I think he sees a slight shift in tone. I mean, initially, Doctor Who's quite grumpy and he has this thing of you can't change history. There's an element of that in here that they can't save lives. And later on in the series, it is played completely as tragedy when one of the companions gets to know somebody and then has to process the idea that that person's died because that's just how history works. And there's that question, could she have been saved? Should she have been saved? But there's also something happens to William Hartnell in series two. That's what this is. This is series two. As much as he has this reputation for being the crotchety grandfatherly figure, he loses control of his performance in a really nice way. I don't mean that he loses control as an actor. He just seems to be seized by some little wave of ecstasy. I think it's the point where he suddenly realises that even if Doctor Who were cancelled at the end of the second series, he's not going to get a call from his agent saying, Oh, Bill, love, i got another Sergeant Major part for you. That's not going to happen. He's never going to play another Sergeant Major again. <laughs> and he starts to perk up and there's a hyperactivity about him. If Patrick Troughton had replaced William Hartnell a year before he did, I don't think the difference between the two would be as marked. The First Doctor is a impish anarchist at this point. And on the one hand, it's kind of shockingly amoral, but also this a nice feeling of the story going out of control. Doctor Who's always going to save the day and right wrongs, and just seeing him go... <laughs> <laughs> at the fire of Rome. <laughs> it's horrible if you think of it in story, but out of story, the idea that he's just, yes, kind of likes the idea. And I was saying earlier, Ian was kind of there to take on some of the action stuff. That falls away a bit. The bit that really leaped out at me, I think that was the point at which I wanted you to watch this, is let's talk through this plot sensibly, just in case there are people who haven't watched it, don't want to watch it, TARDIS has landed just outside Rome. They're staying at this villa. Ian and Barbara have decided they want to stay at the villa and do it. Pardon? It's generally accepted fan theory uh, that that scene where they've just been kicking back and they do that joke about looking for grips in the fridge and they've been enjoying each other's company a great deal. Now, unlike Howard and Marina, I don't have any strong opinions about this. I guess you'd have to ask William Russell if he remembers. Did you agree that you were going to play it that way? <laughs> well, anyway, they've decided they're going to relax. And Doctor Who and Vicky have decided they're going to go to Rome and have a look around. On the way, an old white-haired musician has been murdered, Maximus Petullian, and the Doctor is mistaken for Maximus Petullian. He can't really say, no, I'm not him, because of the plot. <laughs> well, I suppose when you're talking to a centurion, you don't know what he's going to do. If you say, I'm not the guy you're looking for, leave me alone. He's supposed to say, I might be. Who wants to know? Just treat the centurion <laughs> as if he's like the rent collector, as if he's Andrew Saxon rising down. We're saying centurion. A... I think he's just, he's a Roman soldier. Anyway, they end up going to Rome under false pretenses. It turns out that Maximus Petullian is part of a another plot that's going on. They're trying to work out something shifty's going on here. Why was the real Maximus Petullian murdered? So anyway, the guy who did kill the mural Maximus Petullian, but he's unable to speak, therefore he's not able to tell them that they've got the wrong guy. He's sent off to kill this new Maximus Petullian. And the way I would normally expect it to play out is there might be a bit of a fight, there might be a bit of a scrap, or... Doctor Who might come up with something brilliant technological to avoid it. In this, he gets stuck in. Oh, you want to fight? <laughs> Goes after the guy and then talks about training the mountain mauler of Montana. So he's got form. They should go at it like those two fellas in the opening titles to Not in Your Nelly. <laughs> Ian is disappointment to me in this. 
story. Because I know, I know you're coming on to this anyway with the plot, but basically Ian gets captured, he's sold into slavery, and then they said to him, hey, look over there. And it's some um, Johnny Morris voiced <laughs> archive footage of some lines. We had Lenny the lion in there as well. And we had Max, the 2,000-year-old mouse. And all that kind of stuff. You know, they just just threw in all these bits and pieces. Unusual and, big bird. Yeah, yes, yeah. And it's like, you know, here's what's coming for you next week. But then next week comes and there's no lights to be seen. So what the hell? Bait they look out the cell window and see really scratchy 16 millimeter footage of lions, which isn't, it's like, okay, that's fine. I don't expect them to have real lions wandering around a BBC studio. But they keep cutting. It's like, look, there's more than one lion. It's like, right, this just doesn't work now. One piece of footage of one lion I can accept, but a montage is just like, they just call it, right, what's all the footage of lions? Right, cut together about 10 seconds of it. Send it up, yeah. I, I would have preferred it if it had been a rostrum camera still of a line. <laughs> what would be good was for a prop paw to just get stuck through the window and waved about. Actually, that's worth mentioning. When I started watching the whole series from the beginning with my wife, she didn't know what a Dalek was. So the cliffhanger of the first episode of the first Dalek story is you just see the plunger and the gun and Barbara screams. And my wife just thought that it was some plunger-shaped weapon. What was the cliffhanger last time? Oh yeah, that's it. Somebody waved a plunger at her. Can you imagine if the cliffhanger resolution to that episode was <laughs> the camera spins around and it's Stanley Roper? <laughs> Under the right conditions, that could have been terrifying. Under any conditions, that could have been terrifying. <laughs> now, you mentioned about the Daleks and your Cybermen and Klingons and all that kind of stuff. There's not any of them in this. At what point and I'm not even suggesting that this has definitely happened. I'm presuming that it's happened at some point. At what point in Doctor Who history does it become the fans are sort of expecting a bit of Dalek action at some point, so we best crowbar them into this story here. And Oh, I notice we haven't got any Cybermen in, in this particular series, and we've got a lot of Cybermen merchandise that we've got ready to roll into the shelves of Woolworths this Christmas. So could you sort of get them in there somehow? Did that ever happen? Well, actually, what happened was, I mean, the Daleks were an immediate hit. And this is a few weeks into the life of the series. And Sidney Newman, head of drama, he was furious about this because he thought it was eating into the educational remit. But a hit is a hit. The big thing was, let's try and find the next Daleks. Let's try and find the next thing that we can market. And there are a few times when you can see they've desperately pinned their hopes that this is going to become the next big thing. Part of the problem is is that Terry Nation wasn't a staff writer, so he could keep the rights to the Daleks. So there was negotiations with him that had to happen, so there was some faint hope that they could get a second Daleks out of this. The Cybermen don't come in until William Hartnell's last story, and they kind of look like Vic Reeves' living carpets. They're <laughs> the living socks. They've got socks pulled on their head with mouth open. They're quite frightening in their own way in that they're weird. They're not frighteningly inhuman. They're just kinky. <laughs> kinky sock men. Everybody's talking about kinky socks, kinky socks. Now, right, I've got to ask this question because it's just occurred to me. But, okay, Terry Nation, creator of the Daleks, he owns the intellectual property. Was there ever, ever any possibility that he could have gone to the other side and created a, a Daleks spin-off show that obviously couldn't mention Doctor Who, but a Daleks spin-off show for ITV. There was an attempt to create a Daleks spin-off show. There was cooperation with the BBC, talk about trying to take it to America, make a filmed pilot. It came to nothing. Now, I've got to ask again the obvious question for the uninitiated. Have the Daleks and the Cybermen ever met in the same story? Not in the old series, no. Well, I think they've appeared. They appeared in The Five Doctors, but no, there's never been the big fight between the Daleks and the Cybermen in the old series. Where does K-9 fit into all this? The 70s. He fits in the 70s. I do like how they introduced Nero with a belch. I believe this has happened before. There's a story called Marco Polo, which I'm not watching any reconstructions of because there is a greater chance of Marco Polo being found than any other lost story because apparently it was sold much more far and wide. But I gather there's one where it sort of says, next episode, Mighty Kubla Khan. 
And the next episode, Mighty Kubla Khan comes in, his old man with a walking stick who complains about his farmer giant. Well, I don't know what exactly, but he complains about his bad leg or something. Goat. Is he played by Edgar Kennedy? <laughs> right, I have the first of my recasting suggestions. Okay. This one is a serious one. There may be some nonsense later on, but my first suggestion for the Doctor, obviously, William Franklin. William Franklin wasn't that type really at the time i know there's some talk about was he actually on the list for bond pre-connery but he was i think for more dynamic characters they didn't really see the character in those terms in those days and i'm not sure he would want to be playing that type at the time i mean the list of people who were asked or consulted for doctor who is ridiculously long Michael Benteen turned it down because he was told he wouldn't have the opportunity to write for the show as well as act in it. I think Michael Horden was considered to replace William Hartnell. Well, you do have the weird thing that you can't necessarily tell what direction an actor is going to go in just by their previous work. Leaving aside the matter of this sporting life, if you look at the weight of what William Hartnell was doing pre-Doctor Who, generally slimy gangsters, gruff sergeant majors, there's not that much to tell you that he's going to be grandfatherly, crotchety, then giddy and anarchic, and some combination of those factors. Patrick Troughton is a complete shot in the dark because he's a very versatile actor. He didn't really want to play the part. It's just that he did the old ploy of asking for too much money, and I think the too much money he asked for was less than they were already paying William Hartnell. But John Pertwee, I think John Pertwee was brought in to be funny. They wanted to continue the whimsical, humorous tone of Patrick Troughton. Because if you're thinking of some idea of making him a dashing Edwardian action hero, you don't get the funny voice guy from the Navy Lark. I think that was his personality coming through, him taking a certain amount of ownership over the part and them deciding, well, this works too, this, this is successful. But before it really solidifies, there's all this talk of that he's going to play the guitar and he's... He wasn't supposed to have an Edwardian outfit. The idea that one point was going around that he was just going to have a modern grey suit. See, when I suggested William Franklin, I was actually sort of thinking about John Pertwee era and that kind of sophisticated, laid-back character. See, I don't like that. No? No. For me, the first two have this wonderful quality of being unsuitable for heroics. This idea that... This man is not actually meant to be the hero of the story. And initially, he isn't. I mean, he's. It's in some ways taking over, as I say, with Pathfinders from Space. I don't know what year. I think Lost in Space started after Doctor Who, but you have Doctor Smith in that. And before we started watching it, I did once explain to my wife as the thing about Doctor Who is imagine what Lost in Space would have been like if by the end of it, Jonathan Harris had had to be carrying the heroic plots. Because everybody else had gone. So this idea, it's probably controversial to Pertwee fans, but I don't like the Doctor as a dashing hero. And even Tom Baker has too much of that for my liking. I prefer the idea, it's like, this guy is actually meant to be a secondary character, and somehow he's the hero. Okay, so going back to William Hartnell for a second. You said to me that the companion who is his granddaughter isn't. Is that right? Yes, what's happened is originally he's with his granddaughter, the actress playing his granddaughter Susan, Carol Ann Ford, I think got fed up with the part. They promised her something a bit more Avengers-y, promised her something a little bit more feminist, and in the end she's just like, oh, I'm in trouble. And she moves on, moves on to other things. In fact, I believe the first thing she did after Doctor Who is Public Eye. Just one episode, but... You can almost feel that she, oh boy, I haven't been doing this for a couple of years. Ah, fantastic. Get to be all gobby. And they decide, let's go for a suspiciously similar substitute. Let's just, I think they maybe have looked at different ideas, but it's like, right, let's just do Susan again. Vicky is a girl from the future, and she just locks into a grandfather-granddaughter relationship with Doctor Who. And I think because Maureen O'Brien knows that's what she's getting into. She seems to have more fun with Vicky than Caroline Ford had with Susan, because she's 
going into it with a very clear idea. And she does occasionally weird little nudges and sort of pokes out of it. There's another historical story where they're talking to a trader in a Middle Eastern marketplace and he's doing the whole, oh, 1,000 pardons my master style that you get in those things. And at the end, he's like, oh, I shall make you a veritable strutting peacock. And he walks out and she looks at William Hunt and goes, who's your friend? <laughs> She's having more fun with it because she knows where the boundaries are. Whereas Caroline Ford, I think, got confined and it was a frustration to her. I mean, she talks very warmly about her time on the show. Now, going back to the Romans, I'm perhaps under the misapprehension that Doctor Who, as we'll refer to him, He's got all these... I mean, I know he's not like a superhero, per se, but I'm expecting him to have some sort of superpowers or at least access to gadgetry that will help him in his quest, whatever it may be. Now, he gets harangued into playing the role of sort of court jester to Nero because he's got this... What is the instrument he's got? Liar. Eh? L-Y-R-E. Liar. That's oh, what right. it's called. I yeah. oh, see. So he's got this thing, right? This harp or whatever. And he doesn't know how to play it. So when Nero says to him, okay, then go and play your harp and entertain everybody, he does the old Emperor's New Clothes trick and whispers to Nero, he says, uh, you know, only those of supreme intelligence are actually going to be able to hear this. And of course, then he just does a little silent playing. And everybody in the audience is, is sort of cottoned on by this point. So they're all pretending to have enjoyed this lovely, wondrous piece. Now, should the Doctor not really have at least some sort of, not even supernatural, but just, just something where he could turn that little harp into Sparky's magic piano and press a button and off it goes and it's like he's just turned on Radio Free. Oh, even yeah, yes, yes, that would have been fabulous if he'd had like a little portable transistor radio in his pocket and he switched it on and it sounded like he was in charge of an entire orchestra and they're thinking my god how does he how is he able to do this it's amazing in the science fiction ones he does seem to be able to conjure up gadgets that have no proper explanation they're very good at obeying the rules in the historical ones there's a really nice one in the aztec one where for good and sufficient reasons he has to build something to open a stone door and he makes a little sort of pulley wheel pulley system and before he leaves this thing's only made out of wood he takes it with him, because the Aztecs never invented the wheel. So he's careful that he doesn't even leave a wooden wheel behind. Because there is that possibility, what if he loses his transistor radio? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not like the, the Romans are going to really be able to take it apart and make a new one, but it's going to freak them out. But there's a partially a feeling I get, I mean, I think he's lounging around Nero's court for enough time to at least play something. It's not like he's going to be able to play Oh Susanna really fast. I just realised what an utter buffoon I have been. Listeners are screaming this at their iPods right now. The Doctor quite possibly could have brought a transistor radio back to Roman times. When he switches it on, what what frequency should he have? VHF? Or, oh, yes. or, or medium wave? Yeah. Or... <laughs> well, I think he might have got with those classic FM tests. <laughs> with the, the, the birds song. in the forest, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it must be at least something on long Actually, wave. that reminds me of there was that was it in a Chaplin film? Somebody found some clip where somebody is holding their hand to their ear and it looks like they're talking on a mobile phone. And it came up as like a one-week meme of, oh, the time traveller with the mobile phone. It's like, what's the coverage like in 1922? <laughs> See, if you did, if Doctor Who was to go back in time now, I don't know, maybe they've done this in the last 10 years, I have no idea. If he was to go back in time now with a smartphone, then he would be able to at least impress him with some of the gadgetry. He could load up Tetris or something like that. He wouldn't be able to get a signal. So he couldn't make any calls on it. But, you know, if he's got anything saved on it... I mean, I once sat at the back of a coach from Manchester to Glasgow and watched Not Your Nelly on an iPod Touch. Now, that would have looked to previous generations as if it was some sort of wizardry. And what do they do with wizards? Do they burn to be honest, you say like that, that, but I think if somebody from the 16th century watched Not On Your Nelly on an iPod Touch, God, Benny, this is a bit old-fashioned. <laughs> oh, who wrote this? <laughs> no, the feeling I get is that he's lounging around enough he could learn to play something. I think he just felt like <laughs> Yankee Nero's crank. <laughs> <laughs> like, mm, I could 
try and do something proper or I could just get one over on everybody. <laughs> like some first century Jeremy Beadle. Yeah. <laughs> Mess people around. Well, you say that he's got an impish sense of him, so yeah, it does sort of fit, doesn't it? That actually did surprise me because my impression of William Hartnell from having seen him in the army game and carry on sergeant and so on, that's what I thought he was going to be like. So it was a pleasant surprise when he actually turned out to be uh, rather more up for hijinks. There's a lot of unfair things said about acting in Doctor Who. I think it was during the time of the 50th anniversary and everybody's writing essays that they let Terry Pratchett said of Peter Davison, oh, finally, a Doctor Who could act. That's not fair. Patrick Troughton is a very versatile actor, and you could tell. William Hartnell was a very versatile actor, but not really enough of his other work is out there. But you just have to take a look at Brighton Rock and Carry On Sergeant to tell that this guy has more than one level. That's before you even get into... Things like Appointment with Crime, and there's one he did with Peter Laurie. He had a nice line in Slimy Gangsters. Appointment with Crime, he's got these dead lizard kind of eyes. He's just loathsome. And, I mean, he was cast because he was in This Sporting Life. I think Verity Lambert saw it and saw something in him, and he's not playing a gruff sergeant major there. He's playing a rugby scout, and I think there's meant to be some faint implication that he's a rugby scout because he likes muscular young men but he seems quite a lost character in that. And, I mean, John Pertwee. Doctor is possibly... Is that Doctor maybe the only really dramatic thing he ever did? But if you look at his comedy work, he's got chops. Oh, yeah. He's got a fantastic range, fantastic range of voices. In a way, you don't really get to see the full extent of his talents in something like Doctor Who because he doesn't have the full breadth. Whereas something like Warsaw Gummidge, for example, you know, he can be a different person two, three times over in the space of one episode. I haven't even dealt with any of the 80s Doctors. Actually, can I say my other controversial thing? Oh, I. I think in the first half of the 70s, they had the perfect Doctor. Unfortunately, he was playing the Master. Roger Delgado would have owned it, I think, because, again, he would have been wrong for a hero. He looks villainous. There's something about his charm that's a little bit untrustworthy. I would have loved to have seen him being the Doctor instead. But that's me. I'm out of step with a lot of these things. I wasn't going to throw this out as a recasting suggestion, but I'm going to do it now. Nicholas Courtney as the Doctor. Nicholas Courtney's one of those actors, again, I don't know where he would have taken it. I can picture him, though. For much that people think of him as, oh, the good old Brigadier, he's been in a lot of different things. Yeah, I I don't think there's anything that would have prevented him doing a good job, but I'm not sure what kind of a good job he would have done. But then again, getting the right guy isn't enough. Colin Baker was a good piece of casting because Colin Baker, at least at the time he was cast, was naturally villainous. He was the right guy in the right place at so much the wrong time. Everything else was going wrong and he was on the sharp end of it. Would it have mattered who had been playing Doctor Who, given that obviously Michael Grade had it in his sights? Michael Grade wanted to shake up BBC One when he came in, and he was looking to sweep out. It's not what Michael Grade's fault. Just what happens is, is the production was getting simultaneously complacent. The script editor was getting resentful of the show. He's stuck in that costume. I th- yeah, I think whoever had been playing it under the circumstances, the show would have gone wrong. The only thing that could have saved it was an actor big enough to start calling the shots and doing it. His or her own way. Okay, now that brings me on to my next recasting suggestion. Any era you like, Edward Woodward. No. No? Because Edward Woodward can be heroic. That is, in fact, I think one of the things that makes Callan compelling. Because Edward Woodward is kind of playing against type. He uses those qualities to make this deeply unpleasant person sympathetic, his heroic qualities. Okay, this big rewatch that I had... My wife's getting like Mrs. Columba. I'm always using her as a rhetorical device. Except she did a Beryl Marston and did a very brief appearance on the New Year surprise show. <laughs> we only watched one Tom Baker because my wife said, I remember seeing bits of Tom Baker on PBS and I am not watching that man. Well, that's not going to any repeats of the book terror then, isn't it? As it happened, I had bought some DVDs, bought it to get like a 
black and white one or, or maybe a series one John Pertwee one. And it had a Tom Baker one bundled in with it. And I said, we have to watch this one. It's Robots of Death because Russell Hunt is in it. Is he one of the robots? No, but he's nothing like Lonely. He's dressed in a very bizarre Art Deco fashion and he's got a rather fancy beard. He does lose control of his accent at one point and delivers one line in real broad Birmingham from nowhere. <laughs> I've got, sorry, I've got to look back at my Roman notes. What have I said? Oh, that was it. So, so I was talking about flippant death. Right, flippant death. First flippant death, here, drink this, <clears throat> dead. The second is Ian and Barbara have found each other. Ian's been turned into a gladiator for Nero's personal amusement. He's got just this like little tiny bit of sand where he can watch people fight to the death. Ian escapes. Nero's aware that there's a connection between Ian and Barbara. And he says to one of the soldiers, give me your sword. And we see him step in front of Barbara and thrust the sword and we hear a scream. So it's being played for peril. In some ways we know it's not going to happen, but it's meant to look like he's killed Barbara. He's actually killed the soldier behind her. And again, he gives that little, he didn't fight hard enough. It's the same joke, but it's nastier the second time. One, it's not poison, it's a sword. But also, he's murdering somebody in front of Barbara. As an identification character, she's there for the horror of seeing somebody die. That first one, it's horrible if you think about it, but it's being played televisually. In fact, I think Derek Francis practically breaks the fourth wall. He does, I think, briefly look into camera, but he looks away before he delivers the punchline. So it's that thing of that little twist that I really liked. It's... The form is kind of the same, but the content's beginning to change. Right. I want to ask you about Romans era, but not necessarily specifically the Romans. We talk about Roman times. I mean, when we did Up Pompeii on Sitcom Club, wasn't it like the, the TV series and the movie were 150 years apart? <laughs> oh, very, very probably. I mean, genuinely, all of my historical knowledge is from the Carry On films. But I mean, as long as I... F1 car doesn't drive by, then I can suspend my disbelief. Okay, this business about how the Doctor doesn't want to mess with the time-space continuum and all that. How seriously is that taken by the initial scriptwriters, and do they take liberties with it then on? Because it seems an obvious thing to say, and I'll say it anyway because it's what I'm thinking, but I mean, hell, I can't be the first person that ever said this on a Doctor Who-related podcast. But we all know that the second anybody was able to step back in time and appear somewhere else, they've automatically buggered up the continuity. If the Doctor catches Nero's eye for a second and then hides behind the corner, he's knackered continuity for the future. doesn't matter how much input or otherwise he has into events that are going on. So how seriously is this taken? Because obviously it can't be absolutely taken seriously because if it was, then he'd straight away, as soon as he invented the TARDIS, he'd say, right, well, we're not going any further with this <laughs> because, you know, God only knows what we're going to end up with here. Initially, they take it very seriously and it's dealt with in this story. He talks about how they can't change history and then Vicky points out he gives Nero the idea for burning Rome. But he hasn't changed history because they already knew that Rome burned down. He's become history. So early on, I think that is the tack they take. Anything that they can remember really can't be changed. And there's a line in the Aztec story. You can't rewrite history, not one line. Now, later on, this is kind of played as being not true. History could be changed by the TARDIS crew. Should in some ways, shouldn't in others. Initially, if they have any effect on events, it would just fall in line with the way things happened. A thought occurs. And I'm going to make the first ever Doctor Who Goodnight Sweetheart comparison. Yeah, right. What? Well, I mean, that comparison's made in the series when he sees a police box and smirks. I was not including the texts themselves. Are you going to spoil the ending of Goodnight Sweetheart? No, no, Okay, no, no. that's good. We've, we've already done that anyway. But no. Yes, but we announced it beforehand. That's the We important. did. No, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to do anything like that. But, okay, so early on... Gary Sparrow realises that he can't take too many liberties, particularly with song publishing. That's his big thing. He, he can't have some publisher come along and say, oh yes, I like that song of yours yesterday. Let's publish that and you'll make a mint. Because as he explains to Ron, look, if I do that, then 
Lennon McCartney won't come up with yesterday and that's going to change the course of everything. So that mustn't happen. Now, Gary doesn't want to change history because he's got a present that he doesn't want to screw up. Whereas the doctor, apart from the fact that it might cause a few problems for those two teachers who are on board, and presumably they're supposed to be back in work on Monday morning at 9am, does the doctor really care if the future changes? Does he have like some really important base in the year 1963 and so on that he doesn't want to jeopardise? He's just being responsible there. There's different ways of looking at it. I think at the time the stories are being written, it's just a case of he's aware that there are certain responsibilities that fall on a time traveller not to do certain things. Later on, you could almost say he's on the run from his own people. Any change big enough will alert them to where he is. That's a different way of looking at it. But another thought also occurred to me. He says, you can't rewrite history, not one line. And another interpretation to put on that is you can change history, but you don't get to write it. You don't get to author history. You can't decide what happens. There's a historical event you want changing. You can't change it to one that you would like better. Let's take something frivolous so that we're not dragging in genuine traumas. If I went back and changed who got the Southern ITV I, I, I franchise... I knew you were going to say that. I was just thinking that exactly. I was thinking 1987. <laughs> I can't guarantee what kind of shows that company's going to be making, what its corporate ethos is going to be. I can't tell you that they're going to keep making Wurzel Gummidge. I can't guarantee a second series of Take a Letter, Mr. Jones, or that Beryl Marston. That's the idea. You can change it, but you don't get to be the author of history unless you're willing to stay and micromanage every event. You could end up with a situation, of course, there have been time travel stories written where somebody goes back, changes something, and realises it sucks worse than ever, and has to go and change it back to the way it was. Well, that is the plot of the first episode of Red Dwarf, series 7, where JFK is the subject and ends up getting involved in his own assassination. There you go. Okay, so it's taking liberties to an extent, but it's something that you get in a lot of different texts. The idea that if you go back in time, obviously, okay, you're there now, so unless you're going to be invisible, then you're going to have some sort of impact on what's going on, but you've not to do anything major. You've not to do anything seismic. Because, of course, the other thing is, even in the science fiction ones, he could just keep going back. Every time one of his companions died, he could just go back, because then you have a micromanagement and he ends up being some sort of micromanaging god of time. Yeah, like Gary Sparrow in Series 7. I thought he was the exact opposite, wasn't he? He just trashes everything. <laughs> to his own ends. If he wants to micromanage because he's going to accumulate another billion or whatever in the bank, then he'll do that for a few days. It's early days of the show, and I guess they also realise it would take a lot of the tension out of the historical stories if they realised... They just say, oh, Nero's horrible. We can get rid of him and replace him with somebody nice. Like I said about Foss, the audience having information that the characters don't, that's partially part of the thing. With the historicals of really famous events, you kind of know before, even when the characters should realise what's happening. When that map of Rome does its bonanza thing and catches fire, you know what's happening, even though Doctor Who and Vicky haven't quite picked up yet what's going to happen. Especially didn't actually play the Bonanza theme when it did that. You could have learned to play that on the lyre. <laughs> Do you not think it would have been better off for a banjo and just knocked out a few George Formby numbers? George Formby played the banjo lately. It's a very different instrument, you know. Oh. Look, he might be an alien. He's, like you said, he's not got superpowers. Hang on, George Formby? That too, yes. <laughs> right, there we go. A story where... Go back in time and prevent Betty Driver's part being cut out of that George Formby movie she was in. See, that wouldn't damage history. Or would it? You see, it could just cause the earth to fall into the sun. Hey, speaking of Betty, this time next year we could be talking about a new some models do have them, according to the rumour. Well, I'm going to wait and see. Michelle Dottrice just said that she's going to be working with Michael Crawford. Maybe they're doing commentary tracks. Yeah, it could be. That's all she says. They're going to be working with them next year, but I can't say anymore. It's hush, hush. We'll see. Maybe it'll be... uh, Life Beyond the Box, coming back. Well, should we mention the Sitcom Lover's Corner blog from our friend G. Baker? Because 
she actually put an argument forward about why she thinks it could work better than still open all hours and the return to the manor born well surely we've had enough of these resurrections in the last few years to have some pointers as to what works and what doesn't work so you'd hope okay another doctor who recasting suggestion for you simon cadell yes 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 i can see that but he's I don't think he would have done it. And then he gets replaced halfway through with David Griffin. <laughs> and then when they make a documentary about it, they pretend that David Griffin never happened. <laughs> Going back to William Hartnell, what is the genesis of the regeneration? Whose idea is this? When they know that they've got to recast, how did they come up with this? Unfortunately, with an idea like that, everybody around at the time will probably say that was my idea. It's a bit like the rover balloons in The Prisoner, the number of people who had said, well, I was the one who said it should be a weather balloon. So it's hard to tell. And I didn't know I was going to have to research the 10th planet. I just did a bit of research into the Romans. (laughs) Now, do you want to know what my favourite regeneration is? Is it one of the comic relief ones? No, no, nothing like that. Because my brother is a big Doctor Who fan. Look, same as yourself, the, the earlier. Is it the one that episodes. upset him the most? Is this more about you getting one over on your brother? No, 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 certainly not. Him going, that no. guy you like's not in the show anymore. No, no, nothing like that. No, it was just that I was alerted to the fact that a particular actor didn't wish to play ball when it came to his regeneration. And so I have seen... <laughs> the episode with Sylvester McCoy in a Can we curly be fair wig. to Colin Baker? He was told you can come back, do a four-part story, and then die at the end. And he said, no. How many weeks' work is that? And how much work would I have to turn down just to do that? Because if it's a theatre run, that could be months of work that you have to turn down for weeks of television work. And he did say, he said, I'll do one series and then go. I believe he was told, we'll get back to you. And they never got back to him. Yes, no, I'm aware that Sylvester McCoy effectively plays both roles in that regeneration. Final recasting suggestion for myself. And I don't want you to just dismiss this offhand. Okay? Kenneth Williams. I think you'd have had too much fun with it. Actors should not enjoy themselves too much. Again, we're talking about another actor who is more versatile than history remembers. This is a common theme in his diaries that he'll frequently complain about the fact that, you know, he's typecast and he's well, done He complains about films. Doctor Who at one point. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure he does. He complains about Peter Rogers wearing Wellington boots on set and Peter Rogers claimed that he never wore Wellington boots. So who do you believe? So you've got this theme running through the diaries. You know, he doesn't like the carry-ons and then... I never wore Wellingtons. Those were my feet. <laughs> that sounds like a Brian Ricks fart. If the opportunity had come up for him to play a dramatic role and they actually said to him well, look we don't want you to play this for laughs we, we're not we don't want you to do the Hancock voices or anything like that we want you to really play this straight then if he'd gone for it then who knows I still think he would have run up and down his vocal register a bit too much for my liking because really if we're thinking about him not being snide or umetra we're kind of thinking of him in Jack and Nori mode and even then it's a bit too big the doctor was supposed to be eccentric isn't he yeah, there's eccentric and then there's wearing. <laughs> Don't suggest Eddie wearing as a casting suggestion. <laughs> well, I was going to suggest Mike Yarwood, but okay. Are you familiar with an actor called Wally Cox? No. American actor. Just out of nowhere, a couple of weeks ago, my friend. You know who'd have been a good Doctor Who? Wally Cox. He's a little tiny fella. And he has a nerdy little voice. I find his voice wouldn't have worked for the character, but... I do quite like the idea of Doctor being a little tiny fella who's on the sides of things and people would quite blatantly overlook at times, maybe. My wife had a whole list of people who should have been doing it instead of the people who were doing it. The only two she didn't want immediately replacing were William Hartnell and Colin Baker. And with Colin Baker, I started her out on the audios. I decided on an experiment. See what her reaction to Colin Baker would be like if the first experience she had of him as the Doctor is the work that's generally agreed to be him being allowed to do it right. Because while there are extremes of opinion about his era, if there is a consensus, it seems to be his time on television was a time which played against his strengths, there were problems in the production, and the audios is where he gets to show what a good job he can do with the part. That being said, 
she was saying Colin Baker was more doctorish after one line. <laughs> the minute he replaces Peter Davison. <laughs> yeah, this guy's more doctorish. <laughs> so, huge slam on Peter Davison out of nowhere, but I mean, she did enjoy Dangerous Davis. Okay, so to return finally to the Romans, I've got to admit, I enjoyed it. It was a good choice. I liked it as my first Doctor Who for 32 years. And I'm now going to put you on the spot and ask, okay, what Doctor Who should I see next? Because I'm liking this sort of campery business. So something along similar lines. The Gunfighters. Okay. It's a historical. There's a heavily humorous element that kind of falls away towards the end. The Shades of Bootle Saddles. (laughs) There's a linking song that's sung by Linda Barron. (laughs) Now, who wouldn't want to see that? I'm sold already. (laughs) It did for a long time have the reputation as the worst Doctor Who story ever. But that was in the early days of fandom, when only people who could remember the show could really talk authoritatively. There wasn't really home video. And the Gunfighters had this lousy reputation, and it's had a bit of a revival in the years since. Though I think a few people agree that that song could maybe do with just trimming a little bit here and there. And one of the companions is Peter Purvis. I'm sorry you've got the kickstart theme stuck in your head now, huh? Well, it can't be helped. Actually, I was thinking of his National Power adverts during the World Cup of 1990, but yeah, each to his own. You did want to talk about Doctor Who adverts, and it would have been good for National Power to have Peter Purvis in the TARDIS saying, what powers the TARDIS? Right, now let me just say this on air, because we were talking about this just before we pressed the red button. I had this idea for a Doctor Who advert, because I said to yourself, you know, what Doctor Who adverts were there? And you quite rightly said, well, that's a problem, because, you know, BBC, and so who would have ended up with a sort of John Noakes Bernard Braden sort of situation if that happened. So here's the idea. As soon as they find out that Tom Baker is going to replace John Pertwee, for example, then get John Pertwee in to advertise Frosties or whatever. And then as long as that advert goes out before he's transformed into Tom Baker, there's nothing they can do about it now because Tom Baker's got the gigs. They can't fire John Pertwee, but it's still relevant as long as you put it out over the summertime or whatever. So did that happen? I mean, does anybody know of any good... I mean, we've all seen, like, the Sugar Smacks adverts with Artist's Impression of John Pertwee, which is a classic. But if anybody knows of any television adverts that There were a couple have... in Australia with Tom Baker and Lala Ward. Core. But Australia's different rules. Only Fools and Horses, that Australian mm-hmm. advert. Yep. I know you say that just do it before Tom Baker started a series, but he's already, I think, stuck in the mind of the kids that John Pertwee's not Doctor Who anymore. So I think it puts them at a slight disadvantage. You can't have a current Doctor. And John Pertwee did briefly appear in, I can't remember what it was an advert for, but they were doing kind of an X-Files riff. I think Kyle MacLachlan was in it. And at the end, you see John Pertwee walk into a building that says Doctor on call. Oh, yes. I do remember that, actually. Yes, yes. I believe the Daleks were in a Kit Kat advert. And I'm not sure if correct permission hadn't been sought from the Terry Nation estate. Or maybe it had but not for something else. I guess there's a whole element of licensing nightmares that makes advertisers wary. But these days, it's probably entirely different. I've just thought of something. And even if I say so myself, I'm actually really, really pleased with this idea. I'm going to position this around about 1985. And you get Patrick Troughton, John Pertwee, Tom Baker, and Peter Davidson all to appear in the same advert. And the advert is for Revels. And the idea is that the companion's there and she's saying, Doctor, you're not yourself. And each time it cuts back to the Doctor, it's a different actor who's playing him. And the idea is that, you know, with Revels, you don't know what you're going to get because, you know, it's all mixed up in the bag. Now, is that not genius or what? I think you've got a heck of an idea there. (laughs) Well, thank you, Tilt, for introducing me to Doctor Who because I actually did legitimately enjoy the episode. And I don't know that I'd particularly get on well with modern Doctor Who because I find it a bit sort of... Oh, what's the word? I find it sort of knowing. It's like it's all set up to be the latest meme on a Saturday evening or whatever it is. Well, so. You know, a few months down the line, shall we do the gunfighters? Yeah, let's do that. Again, let's carry on Cleo Romans, carry on Cowboy Gunfighters. Or you know what? We could do the Peter Cushing films, because that fits in with our less respectable British cinema sub-theme. Yes, And they are like a bit this. Children's Film Foundation. And there's a bit with Bernard Cribbins in a spacesuit. Yes, yes, a robo-man suit, yes. Okay, we'll go with that. So, unless you're not already aware, and I'm sure you are by now, 
we've got a new twice a fortnight format in the works. When we come back with Jaffa Cakes in two weeks' time, what are we going to be talking about then? Men dressed up as ladies. think that that requires a tad more clarification. We'll be looking at three broad, vulgar British comedies from 1972, and central to the plots of these will be men wearing women's clothing. And we'll consider why it's meant to be funny, and is it funny or not? However, next week, Sitcom Club returns, and we're going to be picking up where we left off a long while ago, because we started this little mini-series and we only got two out of the four completed. So we're going to be going back to our discussion on class, and we're going to be looking at professional class. We're going to be joined by Birdie again, and we're going to be looking at three delightful representations of the professional class. We're going to be looking at Executive Stress with Penelope Keefe and Jeffrey Palmer. We're looking at Joint Account with Anna Gordon and Peter Regan. And then we'll be looking at a show which some have suggested that I set my alarm for on a Saturday morning to see this in Granada Plus, and I've always denied that, and no proof has ever been forwarded. It was a slow news week when Panorama decided to lead with that story, wasn't it? <laughs> well, what upset me the most was the fact that they had that sort of NTV-style camera in my living room. I mean, if they just asked, I would have gone along to the studio and explained myself. So that's next week on the Sitcom Club. Don't forget, of course, you can hear all the previous Sitcom Club and Jaffa Kicks for Proust editions at sitcomclub.com and also at podnose.com where you find all my other podcasts as well. Tilt, am I right in thinking that we have been experimenting recently with the old DJ deck? I thought we were stopping doing that for a while. Yes, on Mixcloud, there's a thing called Jaffa Kick Jukebox. At the time of recording, we did two with My Choice of Records, one with Mooncat's Choice of Records. And I think next time we're just going to meet in the middle and do something a little bit more like we do here. Because I've kind of got some of my contemporary feelings out of my system. We have a sort of 50-50 airtime split. So you'll choose maybe half a dozen tracks. I'll choose one Buddy Rich. <laughs> and yeah, there we go. So you can actually you can hear them both on sitcomclub.com as well. So in the meantime, if you've got anything at all for us, if you've got any Doctor Who adverts, from back in the day, if you've found any of those on Umatic, you can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com. You can tweet us at the sitcom club. So, Tilled, you've been Tilled. I've been Gary. And what's this been? Jaffa Cakes for Proust. <laughs>